thousands, literally thousands of journalists across the country have been through their own union drives in the past five years or so. And, uh, you know, it, it changes people. I mean, it obviously educates people and opens their eyes to how important labor is. And also you have people who are going through their own union busting campaigns. They're going through having to negotiate contracts, you know, with their own boss. And so it really, I think, has elevated the profile of unions in the news. Welcome to the Labor Solidarity Podcast, which is an Empathy Media Lab production highlighting the work of organizers, labor journalists, and labor leaders. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm the executive producer of Empathy Media Lab, which publishes content on labor, political economy, art, and culture, and we're a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Today, I'm speaking with Hamilton Nolan, who is one of the most well-read labor journalists in the United States. So, Hamilton, thank you so much for your time. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Ben. Could you begin by uh, d- just uh, discussing your background and how you got interested in organized labor? Yeah, um, and thank you for calling me one of the most well-read labor journalists. <laughs> so a big fish, small pond situation, maybe. Um, but uh, I uh, grew up in Florida, and my parents were '60s people. My parents were both kind of uh, activists in the '60s uh, in the civil rights movement, and um, later also in the labor movement uh, in Atlanta and some other places. And so I sort of grew up, um, you know, in that environment, hearing those stories and at least being being sort of minimally aware of um, the labor movement as a good thing. Uh, but I never really, I never really got personally involved in it uh, for a long time. I became a journalist and, uh, for a long time kind of wrote about inequality and politics and you know all of the all the big problems of the world and why the rich get richer and the poor get poorer and the more that I wrote about that stuff and and read about that stuff you know the more it led me back to labor so i think um anybody who kind of honestly investigates the the biggest problems that america has inevitably is going to bring you back to the importance of labor and the labor movement yeah and the decline of labor unions and the direct correlation of the inequality of the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer is like right in the 70s, you know, you can see, see yeah. that bifurcation going on. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you were also a journalist at Gawker and uh, you helped organize that uh, outlet before it was shut down. What what was that process like? Yeah, it was interesting because uh, I had been I had been uh, writing about labor for a while at that point, and uh, there was an organizer at the Writers Guild East who I was in touch with, uh, who was interested in organizing Vice. Actually, the Writers Guild had kind of made the decision that they wanted to get into the online media organizing space. There was really no unions um, there at that time, and I had a meeting with her at one point. And sort of during our conversation, I was just like, why don't you, uh, why don't you organize us? You know, we're, <laughs> we're just as good as Vice. Why not us? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we called a meeting. I sent out a Facebook invite to like 50 people and really had no idea if, if anybody would even show up. Um, and 40 people ended up coming to that meeting. And, you know, when we all sat down around a table and started talking, as happens in a lot of A lot of union organizing campaigns, you know, we saw that everybody kind of had the same issues, the same things kept coming up over and over again. And uh, we took it from there and it was really a fast organizing process. I think from that meeting to the the vote was some like six weeks. Uh, And we were, you know, one of the first 
at least online media companies uh, to organize and align and organize since then. So it was, um, you know, it taught me a lot because I wasn't, I was not, and still I'm not, you know, a trained organizer. Um, and, and really being a writer is some of the opposite qualities that you actually need from being an organizer, which is, you know, as a writer, you can just say, I'm right and you're wrong. And this is what I think. And that's the end of it, you know, and then I, I actually learned through the going through that process of organizing, you know, I've learned a lot about listening to people and, and uh, on the ground politics and stuff like that, you know, and I'm still learning about that stuff. So um, it was great. You know, we, we organized and right after that, a lot of other places uh, in our industry also organized and that, you know, in the media at large, that wave is still kind of going to this day, which is a nice heartening thing to see. Yeah. And what, what were some of the grievances at that time? Uh, I, obviously probably pay, but then scheduling and things like that. It's funny because it was actually a pretty good place to work, you know, and, and people were very um, satisfied with their jobs in a lot of ways. The pay actually was was not that bad, contrary to popular belief. Um, but but, um, you know, people wanted to protect what they had, for one thing. And um, people also, you know, there were obviously certain things. It was it was as a lot of online media companies, it was kind of run like a startup. So it didn't have any formal processes for basically anything. There was no severance. There was no procedure for doing anything. You know, it was just completely ad hoc. And so people wanted to operate a little bit more like an actual company. But a big thing was just preserving, you know, the editorial freedom that we had and the voice that we had and, and the good stuff that we had. And, you know, shortly after we signed our first union contract, uh, we, we got a $140 million court ruling against us in Florida that bankrupted the company. And the company was subsequently sold to Univision. And because we had signed that union contract, all of the, all of those things carried over when our company was sold. So it really, it really saved our ass in a very direct way, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that lawsuit I've followed a little bit, um, where, as I understand it, the, the Palantir Peter Thiel uh, wasn't happy about being outed by Gawker and then bankrolled Hulk Hogan's sex tape uh, trial that sued Gawker. Is that true? Is that how it went down? Yes. And I mean, you know, he said it was because they outed him, but actually uh, one of the, you know, Valleywag, which was the Gawker publication that covered Silicon Valley, had written about Peter Thiel for years and he had a failed hedge fund and they cover Peter Thiel for years and years with a lot of negative, you know, well-deserved negative coverage, I should say. And so he hated it. And he really did literally walk into a law firm and give them $10 million and say, sue this company out of business. And so that, that Hulk Hogan suit was just the culmination, but there had been many lawsuits before because the law firm reached out to everybody that we had ever written a negative story about. And it was just like, do you want to sue these people? And so there was really a barrage of these like incoming superfluous lawsuits that were getting dismissed. And it was it was weird. You know, it was very uh, nobody knew that Peter Thiel was doing that until the very end. And I thought that was kind of a conspiracy theory and then turned out to be true. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. So now you're currently you have bylines in with in these times, The Guardian. Um, what. What has that been like, kind of that process of uh, being an independent journalist? Um, yeah, what's, what's yeah. that been like? Um, it was it was good. You know, it's a continuation in some ways because Gawker was really independent journalism 
at its finest in some ways. I mean, too too good to last, but it it was actually an independent media company. Um, and and then when I finally moved to Indies Times, Indies Times is another you know it's been around forty years. It's an independent um, standalone uh, magazine. So I really kind of admired Indies Times for for being that sort of true independent media voice that has managed to stay around for that long, which is pretty rare. Um, And so, you know, I encourage everybody to uh, subscribe to In These Times Dirt Cheap. Um, I'm currently actually writing a book this year about the labor movement. So I'm uh, I'm sort of part-time at In These Times, but um, yeah, it's a a great place. And have you seen, I mean, I, I, I presume like just the fact that so many media outlets are starting to unionize that we're going to have more journalists interested in labor union and then just understand the mechanics of running a union campaign and winning and then trying to get a contract uh, from the boss. So are you, yeah, what's that um, increase of attention to, to labor with your colleagues? Yeah, I think that's definitely a real thing. And it's, uh, it's, um, you know, from, from 2015, which is when, you know, we unionize at Gawker to today, I think you can, absolutely see and i can really see an increase in you know not just the amount of labor coverage but sort of a, a quality of you know the quality of labor coverage and it's a lot of a lot of journalists at places that have themselves unionized and so it's a it's a real thing where these you know thousands literally thousands of journalists across the country have been through their own union drives in the past five years or so and uh you know, it it changes people. I mean, it obviously educates people and opens their eyes to how important labor is. And also you have people who are going through their own union busting campaigns. They're going through having to negotiate contracts, you know, with their own boss. And so it really, I think, has elevated the profile of unions in the news. I mean, there's there's a long way to go, I think, but it's definitely elevated it. And also just the the, the kind of labor versus capital dynamic broadly i think um you have a lot of younger reporters today who are who are really tuned into that so you don't just criticize the bosses uh you uh are able to criticize both the unions as well and uh after the afl cio convention in june in philadelphia you wrote a an article with the headline the afl cio's official new goal continued decline. And this is related to the AFL-CIO's new president, Liz Schuler, announcing a goal of trying to organize 1 million new workers over the next 10 years. And when I first heard that headline, I was taken aback as well. And then the next day I see your your article. Could you talk about this? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things I've written about for a long time is ever since I got involved in the labor movement myself is the need to obviously to organize more widely. I mean, and we all talk about that, you know, everybody who really is a true believer in the labor movement and, and knows the history of the labor movement in America understands that, you know, the decline that's been going on for 50 years. I mean, turning that around is really the biggest priority that the labor movement has if we don't want to go extinct or continue to shrink. Um, and so, so getting union density up really has to be like the, the highest priority. And so what we saw at the AFL-CIO convention was like this sort of splashy announcement of a a new goal for organizing, which is a great thing to have, obviously. 
but the goal was a million workers in 10 years, which if you do the math, will actually cause union density to continue to decline in America and, and actually to go into single digits um, from where we are now, which is a little over 10%. And so it, it was just such a striking example of uh, <laughs> the low expectations at the top of the labor movement. Yeah. I mean, as, you know, as a labor reporter, I talked to all types, so many inspiring people all over the place at the grassroots level of the labor movement. But the institutions that we have um, tend to not have the kind of bold vision that we need. And this was just like a perfect crystallization of that. Yeah, the leadership has to have a vision of something much greater that people can be moving towards over 10 years. And to just say, we're going to keep the bleeding at a slow, you know, pace uh, as our great goal is, is just, yeah, very underwhelming and, and uninspirational. So what, yeah, I've, I've heard you talk to, during uh, the weekly meeting for the Labor Radio Podcast Network when you came on as a guest and just talking about that the AFL-CIO, as ma many critiques, valid critiques that we make on this very large organization, having a the concept of an organizing uh, central uh, group is, is important because you're facing very organized capital, for instance. Could you talk a bit about what what that is and and like why it's important to, to have something like an AFL-CIO, even if it's uh, could be doing a lot better? Yeah, I mean, you know, you said it. I mean, the labor movement is the is the counterbalance to the power of capital and society. That's what it is. And when you think of what we're up against when you think of a company like Amazon, you know, these are trillion dollar companies. I mean, they're extremely organized. They do not lack for organization. You know, they do not lack for manpower. They do not lack for resources. Um, they don't lack for lobbyists. They don't lack for staff. I mean, they have all these things. These are the things that we are supposed to be strong enough to balance out. And, uh, you know, a problem with the labor movement in America is that there's really no there's no there there. There is no center of the labor movement, if we're if we're being honest, you know, and that's something that I had to sort of it was it was a harsh thing for me to find out as a as a person who was invested in the labor movement, you know, as I got deeper into it to really find out that the closest thing we have to a central body in the labor movement is the AFL CO, which is a coalition of 55 unions that doesn't have any power to make those unions do anything. And so what we really have is just a bunch of different unions doing their own thing. And we don't have a central focus and coordination and drive in the labor movement. And it hurts us. And, um, you know, I, I am not under the illusion that it's easy to unify um, all those unions. But at the same time, we know that it's necessary. We know that we have to be able to move in a unified direction if we want to have any hope of, of turning this thing around. And so, you know, you have to have that vision at the AFL-CIO and at the top of the labor movement. I mean, if nobody else believes it, they have to believe it. So if they don't believe it, it's, it's very disappointing. Yeah. And it doesn't help. Um, or maybe it does help to have the Teamsters and SEIU being outside of the AFL-CIO to kind of show an alternative, maybe more militant direction that the AFL-CIO should go. But I know that there's a lot of different views on that as well. Yeah, well, I mean, it's understandable why they left, right? They left because they felt the AFL-CIO wasn't organizing enough. And, and unfortunately, Change to Win, which is what they left to form, 
also did not end up, you know, change to wind didn't work. I mean, to the extent that it was supposed to turn around the decline obviously hasn't happened. So we all have to kind of, we all have to be a little bit humble and, and come back to the table and be like, let's all swallow our egos a little bit and try to move in the same direction. So uh, another article you've written recently uh, for The Guardian, it's uh, titled, If Democrats Want Votes, They Should Rain Fury on Union-Busting Corporations. What what uh, got you to write this article? I mean, what I was thinking about when I wrote it was um, Chipotle recently, there was the first organized Chipotle at a store in Maine, the workers you know, came together and were about to vote to certify their union and Chipotle shut the store. And Starbucks, which has obviously been unionizing across the country, is closing stores left and right, has closed a number of stores that either recently unionized or were in the process of organizing and it's firing worker organizers left and right. Um, and Amy's Kitchen organized and just shut an entire factory. I mean, and these are very bold things for companies to do. I mean, companies do this because they assume that they can get away with that. They would not do something so bold if they thought that there were going to actually be penalties. And so to the extent that uh, American labor law is weak and American labor law is, is, is kind of an insufficient tool to punish these companies with in a lot of cases, even though what they're doing is illegal. And if it goes through the process, Presumably, they will lose an honest, you know, an honest judgment. But um, in the meantime, I, I think about what we have is a Democratic Party that ever since Donald Trump was elected has been kind of fretting about, oh, my gosh, we're losing the working class. The working class is going to this right wing populism vision. And what are we going to do? And how do we, you know, that whole strain um, of thought among like the con consultant class in the Democratic Party. And you think about the opportunity that the labor movement has um, for the Democrats. I mean, even, even on a political level, like, look, these are working people. These are regular Americans who are trying to come together and fight for themselves. And they're being crushed by who? Billionaire CEOs. I mean, Howard Schultz. Nobody likes Howard Schultz. Nobody likes Jeff Bezos. Even Republicans hate Jeff Bezos, you know? So like, what better opportunity for Democrats to come out and stand up and be loud and pound the table and say, look, we're not going to stand for this. You know, we are going to use every tool of the U.S. government to come after you for this illegal and blatant um, and unjustified union busting that you're doing. I mean, it's very out and open what is happening. And when you look around the landscape of national national politics, obviously you don't see Republicans say anything. Well, you don't really see any national Democrats saying anything with the exception of Bernie Sanders, you know, and maybe a couple of other people. Um, you don't see the Democratic Party unifying around this. And it's 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 really a symbol to me of the failure um, of the Democrats to even be able to pretend that they care about actual working class issues, because what could crystallize it for voters more than regular working people trying to better themselves and being stepped on? by evil billionaires, you know? Yeah, it doesn't help when you have Howard Schultz, you know, looking, testing the waters on a presidential run in the Democratic Party, and you have Bloomberg, a Republican, moving over and becoming a Democrat, and you have all the Democrats swooning over Liz Cheney right now because of uh, what she's doing at the January 6th hearings. It's it's wild to see the rehabilitation of all these Bush 
uh, folks over the last six years now <laughs> since yeah. since Trump came into power um, that I've saw him as uh, aiding and abetting war crimes in uh, Iraq invasions and then everything else that they did bad and domestically. But I'm yeah. going off on a tangent, obviously. <laughs> so it doesn't also help when you have the NLRB that just came out recently on the 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 lawsuit of Warrior Met saying that we need to get our money back because we had to hire scabs and all this other stuff from this United Mine Worker uh, strike in Alabama for last, I think, over 18 months. And yeah. this is, in a way, if this stands, this NLRB ruling stands, it's it almost like undermines all strikes. It's it, This could be one of the worst uh, rulings yet. What's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, and and what you're talking about is, uh, and my understanding of it is, you know, it was a, re a ruling by the regional NLRB, not yeah. the national, which was uh, Warrior Met coal workers have been on strike in Alabama, you know, for more than a year now, I think. And um, and Warrior Met filed a, a charge and the, NL the regional NLRB basically assessed the union for the cost of all the coal that hasn't been mined during the strike. So it was a $13 million ruling. And the union is like, well, this is the whole point of a strike, right? So, I mean, if if this is how the NLRB is going to operate, then you undermine the entire purpose of striking. Um, and so, yeah, it was insane, insane ruling. I have to imagine that it's going to get overturned. I, you know, I can't see Jennifer Abruzzo, like, putting, being, going down in history as the person who eliminated the right to strike in America. So, yeah. um uh, hopefully we can, at the end of the day, chalk it up to like a bad regional board. But yeah, it was pretty striking. And like Warrior Met's another example of like, <laughs> where where are all the politicians around this? You know, a bunch of coal miners in Alabama. I mean, what better opportunity for Democrats to hold up and celebrate people? Um, and instead they get this. So. Yeah. And it doesn't help when you have like Brian Dees and all these uh, White House folks from BlackRock. And uh, I think BlackRock is also a partial <laughs> owner of Warrior Met Cole. That's yeah. right. Yeah. They've been out there protesting in front of BlackRock. So <laughs> that's uh, that's a good point. So if you were, uh, you know, one of the strategy advisors of the organized labor movement, uh, if it was an organized labor movement, like an AFL-CIO director or something like that, what would what would you suggest are some of the most effective ways to try to in, increase union density? Mm -hmm. I mean, the good news is like it's really a it's really a resource question because we know how to organize unions, right? It's not a mystery um, how to organize unions, and we also know that public appetite for unions is really high, right? The polls tell us that tens of millions of Americans say that they would join a union if they had the opportunity at work. And so the conditions should be very good to organize. What we really need are the resources to organize. Uh, and so what does that mean? It means money. We have to spend a lot of money on union organizers. We have to deploy them in a coordinated way to important places where the demand is. And we have to identify important segments of the economy uh, to organize, like t the tech industry and, you know, low-paid healthcare workers and and uh, retail workers and all of these places. I mean, it's really just a matter of getting the organizers where they need to be. And I completely believe that people will organize when you, when you give them the opportunity. I mean, unions don't spontaneously organize themselves. So 
you know, we have to spend a lot more money on organizing, which unions are not doing. Um, you know, when John Sweeney was president of AFL-CIO, his, his goal was to have unions spend 30% of their money on organizing. And he couldn't even achieve that. And today that's not even a goal. I mean, unions should be spending every cent that they can on new organizing. And, you know, one place they can look for some money, too, is the United States government under Joe Biden. I'm, a lot of people have I've had a lot of arguments about about this with people in the labor movement. But, you know, when all those COVID relief bills were going through, if you got a couple billion dollars for labor organizing, even in the form of like a grant making board or a way to insulate that money from you don't have to give the money directly to unions, you know, but to facilitate labor organizing, um, I think they should also look at the government, which is something that um, hasn't been done in the past. So basically find all the money that you can in the world and spend it on organizers. <laughs> yeah. And gold is where you find it. So, um, you know, it, like if the money is going to work, then just, just use it for, for good. Right. Um, so right. look at, looking forward, you're, you're working on a book, uh, called the year of the hammer. I know a lot of people writing books don't want to talk about it until it's done, but what, what is this going to be about? And when do you hope to publish it? Uh, it is about the labor movement. It's about um, it's sort of being reported over the course of this year as chapters on a bunch of different uh, unions and um, different aspects of the labor movement that I think are good examples uh, of both the opportunities that we have and the way to do it right and also the challenges. So, you know, there's a chapter about the culinary union in Vegas as an example of, of how to build power. And then there's a chapter about uh, fast food workers in West Virginia who tried to organize their store and sort of the obstacles that they ran into and stuff like that. There's a lot of reporting about uh, Sarah Nelson and sort of the, the leadership of the labor movement and what that might look like going into the future. So hopefully it will all come together uh, and still be interesting. And it's supposed to be published early 2024 because book awesome. publishing is very slow. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah, well, I appreciate you sharing that. I definitely look forward to reading that. And so how can people follow your work and support you? Yeah, uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, at Hamilton Nolan on Twitter. I usually put all my stuff there. You can also subscribe to In These Times, uh, write for The Guardian pretty regularly, and uh, look for my book in a year and a half or so. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Hamilton Nolan, thank you so much for your time. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Ooh. Ooh.